This is Pastor Derek Thomas of Living Witness Ministries, and I want to welcome you to the Living Word Podcast. I pray that today's teaching blesses you, inspires you, and encourages you to live a life worthy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that we serve. God bless. As we go into our word for today, we're in the midst of a series entitled, Know Your Heritage. The first message we, I addressed the first message last week and I dealt with the whole premise of the heritage that we have. And as believers, we have a heritage spiritually of being what is known as believer priests. Believer priests are individuals that have and hold the office and responsibility of a priest, which are the spiritual purveyors of the gospel and the spiritual bellwethers of the lives of individuals. And we do so by faith as believers, knowing that it's only through Christ that we have the capacity to do so. Today, we want to begin to delve deeper into the practicalities of our heritage. And we wanna look more closely at this office and what it entails and what it means for you and I as we seek to do this work of ministry that is a believer priest. It's housed in one verse in the Bible. It's found in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. It's in his first chapter of writings and it's verse 17. And I'll be reading actually from the King James Version of God's Holy Word. And what you'll find written here reads in this fashion. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Let me read that again because two is a number of witness. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. As we speak this morning to the subject, the practice. Amen. The practice. I actually saw this verse hanging on a wall in a lawyer's office about about three weeks ago, better part of a month ago. And when I read it, it struck me because it made me think about what it entails to do that work. In critical care careers, the work that professionals like doctors and lawyers and and counselors do isn't referred to as a job, but instead it's referred to as a practice. It's referred to as such because the work product that these specialists are engaged in is ever evolving and is highly individualized depending on the needs of the client. The end game of every good practice is to see that their client receives the healing, exoneration, or breakthrough they're seeking and are in need of. And our text today here introduces us to the reality that our work as believer priests in the earth is in fact a divine practice ordained and sanctioned by God. Now Isaiah's preface here is in the form of a trial or a great arraignment. Uh, They're all the actors in the judicial process present. The the assessors uh, here are 
the individuals that are being the prosecutors. The assessors here are the ones that are saying they're no good. They're no good. They're no good for anything but death. The defendants are God's chosen people. The defendants here are the people of Judah. And what's going on with the people of Judah here is that they're facing a charge. And the charge that they're facing is one of sin and death was a punishment for such an offense. But it's good to know that our in, that, that in our text here, the scripture demonstrates that the genius and importance of the believer priest's commitment to consistently lifting up a godly standard of living with the intent of bringing about the opportunity for forgiveness of sins and the cleansing from unrighteousness is critical in pleading the case and changing the hearts and minds of not only the prosecutors, but more importantly, the judge, who is God. And what Isaiah here is doing is he's admonishing the children of Israel as a prophet and priest of God's people in that day to stand up and be about their father's business, to realize that they've been exonerated, to realize that they're given a new lease on life, and as such, to take that new lease on life and begin to build and live a new life, making a difference, a godly difference in the lives of others. This same call rings out to us today as modern-day believer priests that are charged with the responsibility of continuing the divine practice of ministry here in the earth, which leads us to the, the, the subject of the practice. As I sat in that office and I looked at that sign and I thought about the gravity of not only the situation that in the moment I was there for, but the situation of the countless individuals that come through the door, I found that no matter what those situations are, as diverse as they are, the one through line that runs through all of them is that there was a need for help, that they had tried to do it on their own, that they were unable to do it, and that they needed the services of one that had a unique knowledge and equipping that they didn't have. And the Lord began to take me down the road of that as it pertains to doing the work of ministry, as it pertains to understanding who we are in Christ. The Bible says that if any man or woman be in Christ, they are new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The word that's highlighted in that is the word behold. Behold means to discover. Behold means to have that aha moment. Behold means to get the revelation that you're created for more than just what you may see in this instance. And God desires us to understand as members of his divine practice that he's created us to do and be more than just what we perceive ourselves to be in this instant. We're more than just whatever age we might be with whatever ailments we might have taking up space in this hour. God has gifted and uniquely qualified each and every one of us to satisfy and answer specific needs that individuals have no matter how great or small, no matter where they're coming from. God has equipped you, yes you, each and every one of you, each and every one of us, to make a divine impact and difference in the lives of people. And our text today is designed to admonish us to be adamant defenders of the faith. Amen. 
We got to be serious about this. We have to understand and realize that the faith is something more than just a word that's written on a piece of paper. It's something more than a word that's written hundreds of times in the Bible that sounds good. Faith, the Bible says, is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith, in plain English, is the capacity to help people realize that it is so, even when it doesn't look like it's so. And we have to say that it's so because God decrees that it's so. And many times, that's what people need to know to turn the corner to do what needs to be done. When we look at these individuals that work in critical care careers, these people meet individuals that are at the end of their rope, whether it's health, whether it's situation, whether it's circumstances, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, whether it's financial. They're meeting people at the end of their need, they're at the end of everything that they know and they're looking for something more. And we have to realize it's in our spiritual DNA to be the agent to introduce them to that something more. We serve, as a hymn writer wrote, a risen savior that's in the earth today. He's in the earth today through you and I. He's in the earth today through the words that we speak, through the actions that we take, through the thoughts that we think. He's in the earth today through the steps that we walk, through the, the, the laying on of hands that we do in situations and in the lives of people. So we have to be adamant defenders of the faith, and we do that first by worshiping God before others through our living, amen, or learning as the first part of verse 17 says in Isaiah, to do well. Now in our text here, Isaiah first speaks of the precedent that every believer priest should set for others with their own lives. In case you don't understand or realize that the lives that we live once we say yes to Christ, we're not living them for ourselves because the Bible tells us, know you not that you're not your own, but you've been bought with a price. If anybody here has ever, excuse me, purchased something, be it a car or a home or, 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 or you know, something like that, there's a difference when you're buying it versus when you're leasing it. I went through that experience. I leased the car for about three and a half years. And I, when I got that car and I was leasing it, I was like, well, I want to do this to it. I want to do that to it. I want to tint my windows. I want to change this on the car. They're like, well, Mr. Thomas, you can't do that because you're leasing this car. It doesn't belong to you. So because it doesn't belong to you, catch this. It has to be left in a condition where no matter how much you use it, it still represents the owner of the vehicle. But when I, was, when I bought my car that I have now, and I just, uh, just so happens I bought it from the same company that I leased my first car, same make a vehicle. I'm like, okay, I'm buying this car, so I probably can't, you know, tint the windows or anything. They're like, no, you're buying that. That belongs to you. It represents you. So you can do whatever you want to do with it. You can jazz it up. You can change whatever you want to change. What am I saying? We act as though we own lives that don't belong to us. And many times that's where we can become a stumbling block to others because we want to live our lives that have been leased to us by God, like we bought them. And what happens is when you do this stuff, and I'll go back to the car as an example, when you do this stuff to a car, like when you tint the windows or when you change this or when you modify that, what it tends to do from the standpoint of the owners that made the car and manufactured the car, when you go to trade the car in, what it does is it depreciates the value of the car. It makes it less valuable. It makes it less viable for somebody else to come along and buy it and accept it in the fashion that it is. 
And often what we want to do is we want to take the lives that don't belong to us but that have been bought with a price that we're leasing. And we want to treat them as though they belong to us by defiling them this way, by compromising the gospel, by modifying our walk, by watering down in this, by cutting back a little bit on that. And God is saying, you can't do that. The precedent that you set with your life is such, and I've mandated it as such, so that even as you stumble through life and make mistakes because I expect you to do so, I need you to understand that the precedent that's been set for your life is a precedent not to just live, but to do well. I don't want you to do good. Anybody can do good. I want you to do well. Now, the precedent here that Isaiah is speaking about includes aspiring to live a life in a constant dual state of overcoming and learning. And what that implies is that the nature of the practice of a believer priest is both comprehensive and situational. Let me explain all that. God understands that life is nothing more than a series of seasons that are strung together for you and I. And as we live these series of seasons that are strung together for you and I, we go through periods of learning, periods of understanding, periods of implementation after testing, and we go right back to learning. And what happens, which is why Isaiah said here, learn to do well. God desires us to be in a constant state of coming to understand him more in and through his word to the point that we don't do just enough to get by. God wants our A effort. I was in a meeting recently for leaders for my job and they talked about that one of the questions that they asked actually was of us as leaders, what does a gold standard day look like for you in your occupation? And they had us write down all the attributes and they said, we want you to be specific. So as I really sat and I pondered, I started writing down specifics of what a gold standard day looks like for me in my day-to-day -day work as a manager. Then the next question they asked is, now that you've identified that, write down what your current best work day looks like. And I wrote down that. And they said, be honest. I wrote all these things down. And then here was a kicker question, which is a question that God asks us daily. What things are keeping you from moving your good effort to your best effort? That was a painful list to write because it forced me to strip away my pride and lay everything down and realize that these are things that are beyond my control. I need help. I need help from something or someone more than who I am because if my best in and of myself isn't good enough, how do I get from my best to the top tier best that I expect? I needed something more. And because I am a man of faith and because I have the spiritual dynamic at work in my life, right away that clicked and resonated in my spirit that I have to learn to do well. This is a process of self-discovery and, and petitioning God and seeking direction and gaining insight and getting understanding and implementing what I now understand so that I can graduate to the point of getting better. And this is what the dual component of situation and um, comprehensive 
pervasive means. As we learn in situations how to let go and truly let God be God, and God takes us from the point of doing great to the point of doing well, then we can take that experience and we can share it as priests because we've been given the charge, as we learned in our last message, we've been given the charge to have spiritual oversight of other individuals to bless them, to be a blessing to others. We can then teach others how to live well. But the problem is, many of us that purport to be the believer priests that God has called us to be aren't in tune with the heritage that we have, so we're stuck in our good, thinking it's our best, when God is calling us to do better. Amen. Now, today, our role as modern-day believer priests is also comprehensive and situational, as it's through the tests and trials of our lives, that the brilliance and importance of God's mandate to learn to do well, as our text states, comes into clear focus. God never called any of us to be flawless. Let me say that again. God never called any of us to be flawless. However, he's called every one of us to strive to be like Christ. That means we don't just sit on our laurels and just get comfortable with being just as is. We don't take the song just as I am out of context. The song just as I am was not telling us to settle for just who we are and don't aspire to be better. The song just as I am was a moment of self identification like I had in doing that exercise and in identifying where I am, realizing that in order for me to get to another level, I've got to move. There's a saying I remember reading on a, a little figurine that my mom had at home when I was a kid. And the saying said, if you feel that you've gotten far away from God, guess who moved? And the first time I read it, I didn't understand it. So me being a, 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 an inquisitive kid, I was about 13 at the time, I wouldn't ask my mom, Mom, what does this mean? And she said, well, baby, what that means is that God never changes. God is stationary. He moves with us. But if we find that there's a disconnect or a distance, God hasn't moved. We have. Because we have free will. And we have to make the decision to stay in lockstep with God. God needs and desires us to stay in lockstep with him because the only way that you can learn about your heritage is you learn about it from individuals that have lived it. Most cultures before there was written word shared from generation to generation the importance and the essence of their heritage regardless of race through word of mouth. You went to the, your, your parents, you went to your grandparents, you went to the wisest individual or the oldest individual in a community and you sat at their feet and you listened to them tell stories of the triumphs. You listened to them tell stories of the trials but most importantly you listened to them tell stories of the life lessons that were learned because it's those life lessons as that pass from generation to generation that bring about a difference because those life lessons become the foundational points that adaptation takes place because as new things happen, the Bible comes into clear view and proof when it says that there's nothing new under the sun. The, the packaging may look different, but the issue is still the same. It's sin. And sin is rectified only through the blood of Jesus Christ. But what we have to do is understand our heritage because once we understand how something works, we can then adapt it to work in that situation. 
I don't know if you guys watch superhero movies. I do. I'm a big kid. I'll admit it. If you follow the Iron Man series from the first Iron Man to Iron Man Endgame, you see how his armor changed so many times because as new challenges arose and as new understanding came about in him from where he failed, he made changes to adapt the armor so that it was right for the situation. The Bible tells us that we need to put on and keep on the whole armor of God. We have to adapt to it because sometimes it may not be Sometimes we might need a little more faith. Sometimes we have to shut boots with the word that's a little bit tighter. But the armor is made and the armor is designed for us to be all that God has called us to be. So we have to aspire to serve in a way that truly pleases God and blesses others. Look at what it says here in 1 Timothy. It says in the third chapter, verse 13, For those who have served well, gain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. So that's saying when we make the commitment to worship God through our living, when we make the commitment to learn to do well, I'm a living witness of this. When you learn enough and you get enough good grades in a particular discipline, you get to the point of graduation. And when you get to the point of graduation, and it's critical, the graduation dynamic isn't the important part. Me walking across the stage to get my master's degree last year wasn't the important part. The important part was when I go back and look at the registrar's office, which is the office that verifies that you've learned something. I can go back there when I call them and I give them my ID number. They say at the end of my transcript, because I can read it, degree conferred upon, which means now it shows that the powers that be, the, the authorities have said that you are now worthy to carry this title because not only have you met all the conditions, but you've been tested and been proven as one that can carry the weight and responsibility that comes with those letters now that go behind your name. God desires not only for us to get it, but he wants to be able to confer upon us his blessings, confer upon us his favor, confer upon us the boldness and the faith, because he's not going to let just anybody go out there and be bold. He needs to know that you know in your knower what you know. But oftentimes what the enemy tries to do is keep our brains so scrambled with stuff going on that we forget who we are. We forget where we came from. We forget what we're made of and what we're a product of. We're king's kids. We're priests. We talked about it in the scripture before. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're peculiar people. We're not like everybody else and that's by God's design. Which leads us to our second point. We're adamant defenders of faith, secondly, by witnessing to others through our faithfulness. A little bit further in the same main verse of Isaiah 117, Isaiah speaks on the purpose of the specialty work that believer priests execute. First, he said there, learn to do well. That's the precedent. Secondly, he said, seek justice. That's the purpose of what we do. Isaiah reminded the believer priest in the text that the divinity of their works is derived through their relentless pursuit of justice for those who are oppressed naturally as well 
as spiritually. This oppression is a result of sin and the key for non-believers to accept or to accessing rather this specialized remedy is held by believer priests as part of God's divine design. We have to understand that the key to unlock the door to salvation, the key to unlock the door to revelation, the key to unlock the door to divine understanding and insight is housed in the work of the believer priest. If you go back in the word, and we talked about it before, in the days of the Old Testament and Old Covenant, there was only one individual that had the capacity to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, and that was a high priest. So if we had prayers, if we had stuff, you know how we go to one another's day and say, you know, sister, pray for me, or pray for my husband, pray for my wife, pray for my children, pray for my job, pray for this, pray for that. We didn't have the capacity to do that for, with the intent of a prayer genuinely going before God because no individual was found worthy in and of themselves to go before God. It had to be done through an individual, through the priests that were in the temple. And if you remember when we talked about it last, the, the, the Aaronic tribe or the tribe of Aaron was a tribe that God set apart to be the priests in that day. So if you had a prayer, you had to go to someone of the tribe of Aaron because only the males of the tribe of Aaron were allowed to go into the tabernacle and do the work of priests. And of those individuals, only one, the high priest, was able to go into the holy place where God resided one day a year to take all the petitions to God so that God could deal with a year's worth of petitions from everybody. Now think about the magnitude of that. If you think about how many times each of you individually have asked God for something in prayer or asked somebody to pray for you on something, no matter how great or small, that's a lot just for you. Multiply that times every single person that you know. Then multiply that times the number of people that we have just in this city and put all that on one person one day a year to go into the holy place and pour out before God. God, I know you're busy, but got a long list and it rolls out and it rolls way, way out. There's a lot on that list. And what would happen is before the list even got addressed, God would address the individual because the priest on that day had went, went in with a rope tied around his waist with a bell on it so that the other priests could hear the high priest moving because they couldn't go in there, they couldn't be in God's presence. They heard that bell stop moving, or they rather they heard the bell stop ringing, excuse me, and they didn't hear any more moving, or they heard a thud, that means they had to pull them out because they were not found holy and they were struck down in death. We look at that and what Isaiah is saying is that the purpose is to seek justice. The purpose of the priest was not to go in based on his own accord but to go in in a mindset that what I'm doing is not even about me, this is about being a blessing to others because as I do this, God blesses me by being righteous enough to spare my life so that I can do the work that I've been called to do. But it was tedious because if the, 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 the negative alternative happened, the prayers went as it were unanswered. But like we said in the, in, in the days of, of grace, Jesus came and did the redemptive work necessary so that veil could be torn so that we can go to one another. We ourselves can go to God. But we have to understand that if you are a part of a practice, you have to adopt the mindset and the credo of the practice. From a doctor's standpoint, a doctor's practice is always built upon the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. 
When I was taking my studies in psychology, we talked at length about the Hippocratic Oath and the importance of the, of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Everything that we're to do is to be rallied around the cry of do no harm. Our focus in doing the work of psychologists is to do all we can to make sure that no more harm comes to anyone. No more harm comes to that individual that's being abused. No more harm comes to that couple that's struggling. No more harm comes from whatever source is coming from. And it takes a passion and a desire to do that, to be successful at it. Because it's not always pretty. It's not always easy. It's not always met with joy and appreciation. Many times it's met with scorn and ridicule. What do you mean? I don't need your help. There's nothing wrong with me. I used to say it sometimes just a tagline, but now I understand that mission truly is the first step towards recovery. And oftentimes, many individuals, as much as it pains me to say it, even those of us that profess the name of Christ, can't recover in some areas because we're not willing to admit that we have a deficiency. We're not willing to admit that there's something wrong with us. We're not willing to admit that we're flawed and we need help. That's why the genius of what God has done and continues to do through us as believer priests. He takes the prerequisite of the priestly office and makes it of none effect because if he knew that he held us all that were aspiring for the position based on the prerequisites, all of us would fall short because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that at our very best, all that we do is nothing more than filthy rags. The, the Bible tells us that we have to be holy because God is holy, but the only way that we can do it is through his son, Christ. How do we do it through Christ? By believing in him. That's why he had to be a great HR manager and modify the name of the position from priest to believer priest. Because that way now we qualify for the position. Because based on just the prerequisites, we don't qualify. But what we did is we took the, the profile test and God saw, okay, even though they don't qualify based on the merits, they qualify based on the profile because they get it. From a psychological standpoint, I understand the test now. The tests are taken not so much to decide whether or not the person has the physical acumen to do the job, but it's to see if the person has the psychological and mental acuity to handle the rigors of the job and be successful. And that's what God has done through us by faith. That's why faith is the key to make all this work. As long as we have faith and understand that Christ is our older brother, and as long as we have the good sense to do what he did in every situation, no matter how deficient our skills are, it'll be all right because the word tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So as modern day believer priests, our pursuit of justice for all spiritually must be just as relentless as that of our spiritual forefathers. This requires us to understand clearly the essence and importance of our role in God's divine design in order to properly and effectively carry on the tradition of our godly heritage. It goes back to like we started. Our heritage, you have to understand where you've come from in order to have a clear vision of where you're going. You can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. And many, many of us that profess the name of Jesus Christ are running in a direction, running for our lives, and we have no idea where we're going 
because we're unwilling or unable to identify where we came from. It makes a big difference when you're trying to find a direction somewhere if you know where you're coming from. You don't believe me? Go to a GPS and try to put in where you're going and you, you don't put in where you're coming from. You ain't going nowhere. I know I've tried it. It doesn't work. But as funny as it is, can I let you in on a secret? A lot of us that profess the name of Jesus Christ do it every single day. We'll get up and ask God, God, you lead and you guide and you direct. I'm guilty of it. I've done it. And I'm thinking I'm sounding fantastic. God, you lead me. God, you guide me. God, you direct me. And I'm having a hallelujah good time. And one day, God just interrupted me in the midst of it with one word. Where? I'm like, I'm sorry, God, what? He said, you said, lead you, guide you, and direct you. Where? Where do you want me to lead you? Where do you want me to guide you? Where do you want me to direct you? I can direct you to the bathroom. It's right next door. Where? But then the even more in-depth question, where are you coming from? What mindset are you coming to me in? This is why I said, as believer priests, we blow it sometimes. Because if we're all honest with ourselves, many times our prayers are selfish in nature. Amen. I can raise my hand to that. They are. But in the midst of our selfish times, God still is willing and able to use us to lead others into his vision and into his will and into their destiny. Because of our willingness to let God be God in our lives. This is why we have to witness to others through our faithfulness. We can't do it through our works because if we do it through our works, we all fall short. But it's through the faith that we have in God that we have to be all that he's called us to be. We have to understand the heritage from which we come. We got to understand where we came from in order to know how to get to where we're going. We got to understand what makes us tick in order to get to where we need to be. <clears throat> We have to realize where we've gotten it right, but more importantly, where we've gotten it wrong and why we got it wrong. So that when that presents itself again, we don't get it wrong, but instead we give it to God. Because we should be in a constant state of casting all of our cares upon him who cares for us. Because when we do that, he in return will give us the wisdom and the insight and the favor and the anointing and the blessings and the direction that we need to do as the word says exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think because of the power that sources from him that's working in us this is why we have to remain faithful in our practice knowing that victory is imminent as long as our faith doesn't fail we can't lose if you don't believe me look at the last word of the bible the last word of the Bible is amen. That means we win. We win. But you got to have faith to believe that we win. Does it mean that you're going to be here to hear the final amen said? No. That's up to God. I can't guarantee you that. I can't promise you that. But what I can promise you is that if we're faithful over the few things that we have here, including the number of days that he's given us here on earth, he will indeed make us rulers over many. And we'll be there as part of the crowd when the amen is stated. We'll be cheering because we're on the winning side. In Romans 
the first chapter says this in verses 16 and 17 before we move on to the last point. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it indeed is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's the payoff. For in it is revealed God's righteousness from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We can't seek and strive for justice unless we're in a just mindset. Unless we understand that what we're striving for is integrity. What we're striving for is what's right. What we're striving for is what's pleasing in God's eyes. And we can't do that unless we have God at the forefront of our minds. And we can only do that, especially in the bad times, when it seems like we're losing, we're losing, we're racking up loss after loss after loss. We, we do that only as we stand by faith. Like Job did, when everything was taken from Job and his wife had told him to curse God and die, his friends had written him off. Job said, you know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His mind was steadfast. He had drawn a line in the sand. He said, I don't care what comes my way. I'm not moving. I'm standing for what's right. That's where God desires us to be as believer priests. That's the foundational hallmark of our practice from a methodological standpoint. We've got to make that point and make that play because when we do that, that captures people's attention. That gives people something to think about. They're like, wow, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. Which brings us to our last point. That we're adamant defenders of the faith by winning souls for the kingdom through our ministry which is the last part of verse 17 that's defending the fatherless and pleading for the widow now you notice I said our ministry so whether you believe it or not you too have been ordained to do the work of ministry you too have a ministry just like I have one May not be standing before people like I'm standing before you, but it's, it's, it's before someone. Because remember I said, when God gets each of us to a point of graduating because of what we've learned, he confers that boldness upon us. He confers that degree of understanding upon us. He confers that degree of anointing upon us. He confers that degree of faith upon us because it says that it's given unto every individual, not a measure, but the measure of faith. The measure of faith that each of you need to make the difference, the godly difference that he's called each of you to make in the lives of somebody else. Could be your children, could be your spouse, could be your roommate, could be a worker, could be anybody. Somebody passing by, you never know. But you have to be spiritually attuned and aware of where your congregation lies because as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, God will lead you and your congregation to cross paths. And when they cross paths, it may very well be the only day that they cross paths. So you have to be ready, not only physically, but even more so spiritually, to do the work that our heritage dictates we have to do. In our text here, Isaiah speaks lastly about the divine plan that God's devised to execute his mandate of exacting justice for those that are lost. Now, in God's plan, what he's done is he seeks to introduce life in the earth through the people and places where death is ruled. And your mind says, wait a minute, stop, hold it, what? So let me get this straight, God. You want to create life through the death of someone or through 
death situations? I don't understand how that works. Christ says, well, how did Calvary work out for you? Because that's basically what happened. It took me to hang six hours one Friday. It took me to shed my blood and die. It took me to take on the sins of the world, to give up the ghost, so that you could have the right to ask me that question. Oftentimes we forget that the very thing that we want to question God about is the basis upon which we're even here to do the work that God has called us to do from the outset. There can be no life without death. The Bible talks about it, except the seed goes into the ground and dies, it can't bring forth a harvest. All the greens that the Food and Drug Administration tells us we need to eat to be healthy, those are seeds, those seeds have to die. They can't stay in the state that they go in the ground in because if they stay in the state that they go in the ground in, they're benefiting themselves. But God created you and I as believer priests to allow ourselves to die to him and to his will more and more each day so that God can use the death that we have to him more and more each day to use what's in us to bring life to others. And when we look at it that way, it, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And what God does is he declares simultaneously to the kingdom of Satan that his season of terror is over in the earth and at the same time proclaims to the believer priests that now is the appointed time to walk in the fullness of victory that God has declared over the enemy. And we need to do that with the intent of meeting those lost and wounded where they are with the life-giving and sustaining word of God. We've got to understand that our work is natural and divine. We have the capacity to speak both at the natural realm and at the spiritual realm. Because we said last week when God created us, he put his hands on us. He didn't speak us into existence. He made us personally so that we could function like him and act like him and be used by him as he would handle the situation himself here in the earth which means we have the authority to speak to situations and they change, to speak to mountains by faith and they're moved, to speak to demons and they tremble and flee. We have to understand and know that we have that capacity as believer priests. We've been duly ordained and authorized. We've been deputized by God through the Holy Spirit to go forth and do those very things. We can lay hands on sick and they recover. We can drape deadly things that not harm us. We can pick up serpents and snakes and scorpions and they not harm us. We can make a difference. The challenge is the enemy keeps us duped into thinking that we can't do all that. But we really can. God desires to use us as modern day believer priests to continue charging ahead with the bloodstained banner of Christ in, in, in hand. Our job is to continue to conquer, continue to gain territory. We're in warfare. And in case you're wondering, we're not on a cruise ship, we're on a battleship, which means we've got to be ready, always ready. My father was in World War II. My dad fought in World War II. And you know, by God's grace, he's still with us, and I'm thankful for that. And I remember as a kid, the stories that my dad used to tell all the time. I didn't get them when I was a kid because I was thinking as a kid. I used to laugh at him because when daddy would tell these stories he was usually you know uh, inebriated to a point and they didn't make sense because I heard a lot of gibberish at that time in between and I could make out certain things that he would say but as I got older 
and I got into high school and we started studying U.S. history, I, I began to realize that my dad wasn't speaking gibberish. My dad was trying to tell me a story. And in telling me the story, my dad was trying to give me a life lesson from generation to generation of what it takes to make it through warfare. My father was in the theater um, in the Pacific. My dad was involved in the warfare between the U.S. and Japan. He was on that side of the world. My dad left Pearl Harbor the day before December 7th. He was on one of those boats that left on December 6th. My dad got back December 8th. He said that everything and everybody he knew was gone. He's like, where the Arizona was, there was nothing there. The friends that I had, they were gone. My father never even knew how to swim. My father served in the Navy for the better part of four years. Three years, six months, and 14 days. I can still hear it in my head now. And the way my father said the warfare would take place, and it wasn't by, by, he was saying it in his language, but I didn't get it, catch this, I didn't get it in his language. I didn't get it until it was interpreted to me by someone that could speak both languages. My father, the gibberish that I thought he was speaking wasn't gibberish at all, it was Japanese that he was speaking. Because I learned as I listened that those that were fighting in the theater in the Far East uh, in the Pacific had to know the Americans had to know how to speak just enough Japanese to fit in when they were island because they were island hopping from place to place. It wasn't a land-based warfare like it was in Europe. They were sailing from place to place and the violence was coming from all forms in all places at all times. And they had to know how to speak just enough Japanese to be able to find this person because my dad periodically would refer to somebody named Rose and we thought that was some girlfriend he had in the, in the military, but it wasn't. That was code for, I guess, a, a, a sympathizer that was known as Tokyo Rose in that theater that the language that he was speaking was a language that he had to speak because it was a transliteration of what the traditional language would be so that Rose could interpret that they're not speaking the language of everybody else. They're speaking a language that's unique so that I can communicate with them. So she would communicate with the GIs to keep them from getting killed and to keep them, from, and to, keep them to continue advancing in the midst of the warfare. What I didn't realize is that my father was giving me the keys to the kingdom and telling me that story. He was helping me understand and realize that in order to make it in life as a believer, you can't speak the same language as everybody else. You can't do things the same way as everybody else. You've got to be in tune and in touch with the spirit and understand that there's a whole nother dimension that's at play here because you're moving from faith to faith to get to glory to glory. Your warfare is coming from all sides and you've got to be mindful, son, that everything that you do has natural and spiritual consequences. And we've got to understand as believer priests that that's what we have to teach. We can't teach the status quo anymore. We have to be like my dad and be bold enough and radical enough to say stuff that may not make sense to anybody else. They may laugh and scorn at you like I did my dad until I got to the point of being sat down by the teacher. For us that divine teachers of Holy Spirit to sit us down and help us realize and give us a revelation that what was being given to you was not gibberish but it was the keys to the kingdom to help you move to the next dimension of dominion that God desires to move us to. We've got to understand that the role that we have it's serious. God needs to use us and he wants to use us to make that kind of impact. That's what a member of a practice does. A member of a practice makes, to, makes sure that that patient, if you're a doctor, or that client, if you're a lawyer, or that, or that subject, if you're a psychologist, leaves better than they were when they came. We're not in the position of sending folks out in a worse spiritual state than they were when they came in. 
God has equipped us to make people better when they leave than when they come in. With the intent of them going forth, meeting God on their own through Jesus Christ, going through the understanding and learning that God desires to do with them, and Him conferring upon them the capacity to go and do likewise. The charge that we have is great. The work that we have is sincere. The payoff is divine, but the sacrifice is tremendous. So we must never weary in doing the Lord's work, but instead we've got to rejoice in knowing that victory is ours. And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58 say this, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Understand that the practice that God has us a part of is a practice that carries great and eternal rewards. There are going to be days where you have to take work home. There are going to be days where you may lie down crying. But I'm a living witness that if you commit to the work of the practice, the practice will pay you dividends and the rewards, the likes of which you'll never experience here on earth and can only appreciate in glory. Amen? Amen. 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 I pray that you were blessed by today's word. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we would be saved. If you've never taken the opportunity to do either one of those things, won't you join me now in prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come before you a sinner. I believe that you sent your son to die that I might live. I believe that he lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is coming back for sinners just like me. I confess my sin. I ask you into my heart and I ask you into my life. Thank you, Lord, that by faith I am now saved. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd like to welcome you into the household of faith and into a loving relationship of salvation with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please email me and let me know of your experience or if you have any prayer requests or praise reports, please email me. The email address is livingtowitness at gmail.com. That's living, the number two, witness at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Pastor Derek Thomas encouraging you to live your life as a living witness.